as the baskets continue going around, I want to make a couple of brief notes and announcements. Uh, First, you mentioned Berkeley say that community groups start back this week. And so we have community groups that meet on Sundays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. And so that's a very good way for you to get to inside the life of our church. And so let me encourage you, if you're not a part of one of those, to come talk to me or look at our our mobile app or find somebody and ask them, what community group do you go to? And and join one of those. Uh, Also, next Sunday at 9 a.m., our T2 forums start back. So through September and October at 9 a.m., the classroom right across the atrium there. Uh, we will have some opportunities to think about doctrine and life. And so over the month of September, we're going to be looking at how do we take the gospel and apply it to various situations in our lives. And so I encourage you all to come and learn from members of our church who will be teaching us. Uh, Third, uh, on your way in or out, maybe some of you pick these up, but we have a devotional through a week of prayer and fasting. So next Sunday, not this Sunday, but next Sunday and the week following, we're going to spend time as a corporate body fasting and praying for God to move in our midst. And so this devotional was, was compiled by members of our very own church. It walks through our church covenant. And so pick one of these up and use it uh, the following week uh, to guide your prayers. And fourth, some of you have asked about what is Restoration Church doing to help those in Houston? Uh, I will say, if you've given money to our church at any time, you are already helping. So one of the networks of churches that we're a part of has one of the largest disaster relief organizations, and they are already there on the ground working. And so in some ways, you've already participated. But we're also putting together some uh, places where you can give, and perhaps we might even be able to take trips there to serve. So just stay tuned. A lot of the stuff is still being fleshed out, but it is our desire to help both with money and other resources as they're able. We want to take the cue from the people on the ground and not assume we know what they need. Um, And so we want to take our cue from them. Last but not least, today is Move Up Sunday for the little ones. Yeah. So Restoration Kids, let me encourage you to run to the back to find your teachers. Yes, for some of you, it's your first time. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. So our, our little ones, some of them are moving up to the lower elementary class, and some are moving from the lower to the upper elementary class. But we are thankful. Uh, that's right, amen, for the little ones. So we are so thankful. Let me pray before we jump in this morning. Father, we do come, and we thank you for the gift of little voices running to hear your word. That's a gift to us. And as we open up your word this morning, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would show us the wonder of Christ. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Let me introduce you to Dave. After being raised in a well-to-do family just up the street in Sterling, Virginia, he went on to Princeton and he received a PhD in management and strategy. At the ripe age of 44, he found himself as a CEO of a Fortune 100 company. One night when he was supposed to be at home eating dinner with his family, he stayed late at the office. And one of his coworkers, Beth, also happened to stay late that evening. Beth was undeniably attractive and particularly vulnerable because her husband had been deployed to the front lines in Afghanistan. Dave used his position and his power to take advantage of Beth. And Beth found herself with child. To make matters worse, 
Dave was not so concerned about the destruction that he caused, but his own reputation. And so he started weaving a web of lies to try to get out of the situation. But what happened is his lies didn't work. So his lies end up plotting the murder of Beth's husband. Sounds like Dave is far removed from the grace of God, doesn't it? What hope is there for Dave? And even for Beth? Well, if you didn't catch it, with a little bit of creative modernization, this is a story from 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. The story of David the king, Bathsheba, and her husband Uriah. So we read this in 2 Samuel 11. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was, being on the, was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And again, David was more concerned about his reputation so he started weaving lies. He tried to get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba to explain the pregnancy. When that didn't work, we read this. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah on the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. This is outrageous. Bathsheba is raped. Uriah is murdered. What will David do? Is he removed from the grace of God? And what about you this morning? Maybe you haven't murdered somebody. Maybe you have. But maybe there's a weight on your soul that leaves you feeling hopeless this morning. Or maybe it's something about your past that makes you think you're unlovable, unworthy, that you're disgusted by and ashamed of. What hope do you have? This morning. Well, those are the questions that Psalm 51 begins to answer. If you have your Bible, let me encourage you to turn there. Psalm chapter 51. This is the psalm that David wrote after the situation we just read about in 2 Samuel. This psalm shows us what it looks like to repent, and not only to repent, but to rejoice in our repentance. How do we do that? Five things that I see in this text. But before we jump in, I want to caution you. This psalm will convict you with the weight of your sin. But it does not leave us there. It comforts us with the wonder of the Savior. We have to hold both of those together as we walk through this psalm. 
What does it look like to rejoice in repentance? Five things. First, turn to God, crying out for mercy from God. Turn to God and cry out for mercy from Him. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. The first words from David's lips turn to God asking for mercy. Why? Based on what? Twice the text tells us according to. According to God's steadfast love and according to God's abundant mercy. That word steadfast love refers to God's special covenantal love for his people. The consistent, ever faithful, relentless, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, unfailing, never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love of God for his people. See, David remembers God's promises. And he remembers Exodus 34, where God says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And Psalm 51 is David's way of laying hold of the promised faithfulness of God. He's turning to the steadfast love of God, and he's appealing to his abundant mercy. That is, unlimited compassion, boundless, tender mercies. So do you see what David is doing here? He is not appealing to his goodness. Think about what he had just done. He's appealing to God on the basis of who God is. God's covenant love and abundant compassion. He's pleading for mercy, for undeserved favor for unmerited kindness. David knows he has done nothing to deserve this. So he doesn't call attention to his religious heritage. He doesn't list his resume of spiritual accomplishments trying to convince God that he's good. No. David appeals to God not because of what he's done, but because of who God is. David appeals to God not based on his own goodness, but on God's graciousness. This is where repentance starts. It doesn't start with you. Repentance starts with God. It starts with turning to God and crying out for mercy from God. David is clinging to the compassionate grace and covenant love of God. There is nothing he is using to bargain with God. He's got nothing. Neither do I. And neither do you. We need mercy. And here's the good news. No matter what you've done, no matter what lies in your past, whether that past is last night or 10 years ago, no matter how messed up you think you are, you can turn to God and cry out for mercy. None of us this morning are beyond the reach of God's mercy. None of us. And here's the thing. Mercy is not just something God gives. Mercy is who he is. We don't have to force it from him. It overflows from him. 
It's in his nature. It is his nature. God is a God of mercy. Will you come to him? The God of the Bible, as this psalm and all of Scripture teaches, is a God who is merciful, long-suffering, slow to anger, and ready to forgive and comfort and heal. But it requires that we come to him. And when we do, we must confess the seriousness of our sin. It's the second way we rejoice in repentance. We confess the seriousness of our sin. So I see three things that David does here to confess the seriousness of his sin. First, he calls sin what it is. Look at the last part of verse 1. Blot out my transgressions. Verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Drop down to verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Verse 14. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God. With specificity, he names his sin. He knows he's got blood on his hands. In his case, quite literally. At least 12 times in this psalm, we read of David confessing his sin. With sobering language, he just names it. Transgression, iniquity, sin. If you were to read the Old Testament, those are the three main words to use to describe God-belittling, glory-robbing behavior that's an affront to God. And David says, that is me. He does not try to sugarcoat his language. He doesn't say, well, God, like I was on this roof just minding my own business and this woman just started flaunting her stuff to me. And I just happen to be overcome by these bad desires that I sometimes have. And then her husband just kind of happened, maybe sort of kind of get on the front lines. And I'm not sure what happened there, but God, I, I, I just don't know. No. He just flat out calls his sin, sin. So should we. But if you're like me, this is hard. If you're like me, you're tempted to use soft words. See, I'm not selfish. I'm just strong-willed. Anybody with me? I don't lack faith in God. I just like to be in control of every aspect of everything. I'm not ungrateful. I'm just picky. I'm not harsh with my kids. I'm just firm in discipline. Here's how clever we are. We come up with terms like hangry. Think about how ridiculous this is. We think that a Snickers bar is going to deal with the anger lurking inside of our hearts. Or perhaps worse, hypocritically, we share a prayer request so we can gossip about somebody. Or, Instead of saying adultery, we say affair. An affair is an event. 
adultery is evil. It's what we do. It's what I do. It makes us feel good in the moment, but it only reduces our joy in the cross. Jesus did not go to the cross because I am a grumpy, picky, high-strung person. Jesus went to the cross because Joey is a selfish, angry, prideful, ungrateful sinner. Using soft words takes the moral bite out of our language. It takes the bitterness out of sin to make it more bland and palatable. But guess what? Unless sin is bitter, Christ will never be sweet. Call sin what it is and savor the sweetness of God. So first, we confess the seriousness of our sin of calling it what it is, and second, by recognizing who it's against. It's against God. Look at verse 4 again. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, at one level, we're thinking, what, David, really? I think you sinned against Bathsheba. I think you sinned against Uriah and a whole lot of other people by lying. So what is David saying here? Well, he's not saying he hasn't sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah, and others. He's just going deeper. David understands that all sin is by its very definition sin against God because it's only God who defines sin. Right? So David understands what we saw last week in Proverbs 5 and when our brother Kyle taught us in Psalm 119. God is the authority. Our ways are before God. His ways are not before us. And so for David, there is no self-justification. David is vindicating God, not himself. And so we measure our sins by God's standards, not by mere human standards or cultural assessment. And so it might be true that one person is less sinful than another person. They've done less wrong. But it would be ridiculous for any of us to compare ourselves with God's holiness and boast that we're better than somebody else. Here's what that's like. It's like the six-foot-tall person standing next to the five-foot-ten person boasting about how tall he is standing in front of Mount Everest. It makes no sense. So it is with us if we try to say that we're better than someone else. See, the seriousness of sin is not determined by what is done, but by who it's against. And it's against God, ultimately. And God is not like the crooked judge that can be bought off with a personal favor. And God is not like the angry parent who flies off in an uncalculated way, erratic behavior. No, no, what does David say? You are justified. You are blameless or righteous in your judgment. God is the righteous judge. And his judgment is his patient, loving, necessary reaction against evil. And deep down, all of us want a God who is completely just and blameless. Right? Every, we want every wrong to be made right. We see it in the world with impersonal things, 
and with personal things against us. We want every wrong to be made right. All of us want a just God. Nobody wants a God who is unwilling or unable to deal with sin. We just want a God who's unwilling to deal with our sin. But David understands that he sinned against God and God is uncompromised in his justice. He knows that he's taken the good gifts of God, power, intimacy, position, and he's twisted them to serve his own purposes. And he knows that's against God. And he doesn't say, God, as you know, I'm usually a pretty good person. I just had a bad day, God. No. See, David knows his sin is deeper than just what he does. That's the third thing that we need to do to confess the seriousness of our sin. Realize it's deeper than what you do. Verses 5 and 6. Here's the way David says it. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So again, David is not saying that his mom, his birth is a result of his mom having a sinful relationship. No, David is confessing that to himself, his disposition, his flesh, his natural inclination, his sin is not a single instance, but a state of heart. You see that? He knows that God is more interested in what he does with his hands. God is concerned about what he loves with his heart. And David knows that deep down, left to himself, if God does not rescue him, he will do more and more evil. And again, this is true for me. And because you're human, it's true for you. We offend God not just by what we do with our actions. It goes deeper. It's about what we love with our affections. We rebel against God not just by violating His law, but by disordering our loves. Anytime we love someone or something more than God, it is rebellion against God. That's why David says that you love truth in the inward being. That's what he's getting at. And so have you ever thought about sin this way? We can't clean ourselves up because sin is not just what we do. Left to ourselves, it's who we are. So trying to clean ourselves up would be like telling my two daughters to clean up after a spaghetti dinner. All it's going to do is move the mess around. It's still going to be there. In some ways, it's probably going to be worse. So it is with us and God. We can't clean ourselves up. We have to confess the seriousness of our sin by realizing it's deeper than what we do. So here's what David says. I did it. It's against God. It's deep inside. I did it. It's against you, God. And it's deep inside. Is this the way you talk about your rebellion? We have a tendency to deal sinfully with our sin. One of the ways we do this is by blaming. It's a trick as old as Adam and Eve. Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent. 
We blame other people for what they've done. They pressured me. You made me so mad. Or we blame them for what they haven't done. If you would have been there for me, if you would have loved me better. Or we blame God. God, if you would have just, then I would have, but you didn't, so I. We blame our upbringing. You know, I take after my father. He was a really angry man, and so I'm just, I just, I'm just an angry person. We blame our biology. It's just the way I am. I'm a really sexual person, and I have to have my needs met. I'm a really emotional person, so I have to have that need met. Now, to be clear, there's some truth in all of those. There's some truth. External factors can and often do reinforce sin. Circumstances can give great opportunities for sin to indulge the flesh. I'm not minimizing that. I'm just saying we have to go deeper. Circumstances, blaming does not get at the root of sin. And sin is like an old oak tree. The longer it's allowed to grow, its roots grow deeper and deeper and become stronger. So we have to sever indulging the flesh at the root. And if we blame shift, all we're doing is putting rotten grass on a, or green grass on a rotten grave. That's all we're doing. We're just covering it up. So we have to take responsibility, not blaming. And when we do, we have to do so with specificity. So one of the other ways that we like to kind of just gloss over our uh, indulging of the flesh and our rebellion is just talking generally about it. Yeah, we'll confess that I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. Yeah, I've done some things in the past that are wrong. Of course, haven't you? But brother, sister, what, what about in your life now? And we get defensive and self-righteous. We just like to generalize. So if this is something you struggle with, let me encourage you to memorize Psalm 97.10. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate sin. I speak from personal experience here. If you pray this prayer, oh, you who love the Lord, hate sin, God's a prayer God will answer. He will reveal your sin to you. And if you want a good litmus test, just go to Galatians 5. 19 through 21, and look at the works of the flesh. And ask God, God, convict me of these things and help me hate it. Help me hate it. See, generalizing our sin dulls the bitterness of it, but it also diminishes the beauty of the cross. So we blame, we generalize, and perhaps the most damaging is we avoid it and hide it altogether. We love our reputation like David did more than we hate our sin. So we pretend it's not there. We avoid exposure. That leads us to being cut off from others around us. We start to live a fake life. And as I say often, when you become fake, you rob others of speaking the gospel to you. And it robs you the opportunity to speak the gospel to them because it's a big bag of empty air. And ironically, we hide our sin sometimes by confessing it only to God. Our brother, who lived 80 years ago, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, helps us here. He writes, If we only go to God with our sin, we must ask ourselves, whether we have not, whether or not 
uh, we have been deceiving ourselves with our confession to God. Whether, have not, whether we have not been confessing our sins to ourselves and also granting ourselves absolution. Our brother or sister breaks the circle of self-deception. As long as I am by myself in the confession of my sins, everything remains in the dark. But in the presence of a brother or sister, sin has been brought into the life. The grace of living in community brings the light of the gospel. Notice who David writes this psalm to. To the choir master. Or we could say, to the church. David understands that his confession needs to be both vertical and in some ways horizontal. That is to God and to others. Now, I am not suggesting you all go write a letter to the church. But I am saying there should be something horizontal to our confessions. Restoration Church, we're deeply flawed. Let's not pretend otherwise. We have sins and sorrows and struggles. Live in the freedom of the gospel. Be open and honest and vulnerable with each other. Share your deepest, darkest struggles and sins with each other. No, not to everybody. Don't come make an announcement. But there should be somebody, some folks, some trusted brothers and sisters that know What's going on in your life? So everybody should know that something's probably wrong, and a few people should know exactly what that is. This is one of the reasons in our community groups we spend time in accountability with one another. And I'm so thankful that so many of you are involved in our community groups, that we can help each other walk in the light of the gospel. It's what we're trying to do, to provide a proactive space where we can bring out both the joys of following Christ and the hardships and our sins and our struggles. So if there's a sin, maybe you're thinking about it right now, that you're intentionally hiding, or a struggle or a battle that you're waging alone, can I plead with you to invite others in? And if you're like, I have no idea, no idea who to turn to, I'd be happy to talk to you. I'm not saying I'll be able to walk with you because I don't, I'm not omnicompetent, but we'll find somebody who can. We'll find somebody who can. Don't hide. So Psalm 51, David models for us what it means to confess the seriousness of our sin. And he has a really big view of his sin, but he has a bigger view of God. And so he trusts in God alone for forgiveness. It's the third way we see David rejoicing in repentance. Trust in God alone for forgiveness. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Eleven times in these verses, and I count 16 times in the psalm as a whole, where David is crying out to God and saying, God, you're, you alone. You alone. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me. Cleanse me. Purge me. 
Renew a spirit within me. Hide your face from me. Cast me not away. Take not your spirit. Uphold me. Deliver me. On and on and on he goes. He's trusting in God alone. And this is what repentance is. It's turning away from our rebellion in faith and trusting that God is gracious enough to forgive and good enough to be better than our sin. But here's the question. If God is uncompromised in his justice, how can he forgive people like David? How can he forgive people like Joey Craft? And how can he forgive you? Who can blot out the record of our sin? Who can cleanse us? Who can wash us? Or David says, turn your, your face, hide your face from my sins. Well, when God hides his face from David's sins, where, who is he going to look on? Jesus. Isn't this what we just sang about? Christ took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden of Calvary and suffered and died alone. And we'll sing in just a minute. Come ye souls by sin afflicted, bowed with fruitless sorrow down, by the broken law convicted, through the cross behold the crown. Look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. Mercy flows through him alone. God's gracious, merciful, lavish love poured out on us, washing away our rebellion because of Christ. And it's interesting to note that in verse 7, David says, hyssop, purge me with hyssop. Well, you know where you find hyssop? It's the branch that the Israelites used to sprinkle blood on their doorpost for the Passover. Hyssop is the branch the priests would use to sprinkle on Israelites who were unclean. They might become clean. You see what David is doing? He is crying out to his ultimate high priest in heaven saying, sprinkle me with a blood of a Passover lamb and declare me clean that I might be righteous in your sight. That's what he's doing. And here's the thing. The sins David committed were adultery and murder. You know what the Old Testament sacrifice was for adultery and murder? There wasn't one. The penalty is death. David is audaciously asking God for a substitute to die in his place. And God graciously and mercifully answers his prayer. It is paid in the person of Christ. Jesus, fully God, fully human, hung on the cross. God turned his face away from David and from all those trusting in Christ and looked at Christ on that cross. He became sin for us. He had done no wrong, absorbed the fullness of God's wrath, paying the penalty for sin, placed in a tomb. But he did not stay dead. He rose, justifying, cleansing, washing all those who would trust in him alone for forgiveness. This is the good news of the gospel. We were separated from God. Now we're reconciled to God. We rejoice in our repentance because it makes, it look, it makes us look at Christ, not ourselves. We rejoice in our repentance because our sin does not define us. That's why. Now, there's some of you here this morning that may be more like Bathsheba. 
You've been sinned against in radical ways. Verse 7 is just as true for you. Christ knows your sorrow and your shame. And He will cleanse you, and He will love you, and He will cherish you if you come to Him. See, the glorious good news of the gospel is it's not just for sinners. It's also for those who've been sinned against. And if we're honest, we're probably in both categories. The guilt of what we've done, the shame of what's been done to us, all of it covered and cleansed by Jesus Christ who washed us. And not just kind of got us clean a little bit. No, look at the text. Whiter than snow. Pure, radiant. Christian brothers and sisters, preach this gospel to yourself and to your fellow brothers and sisters every day. Otherwise, we're going to be left soaking in the guilt and the condemnation and the shame of our sin. Speak life-giving gospel words to one another. Don't let a brother or sister wallow in their sin or their sorrow. Point them to the wonder of the Savior, Jesus, who is the Christ. He is risen, He is reigning, and He is soon returning. We have hope. My friends, not trusting in Christ, can I plead with you this morning to come to Christ? There's nothing you can do to clean yourself up. But Christ has done everything necessary. If you would come to Him and confess your rebellion and trust in Him alone for forgiveness. He lived the perfect life for you. He paid a penalty paying death on the cross for you. And rose again, purifying you if you would trust in Him. Will you do that? Will you confess your rebellion against God? This is good news. And why is it such good news? It's the fourth way we rejoice in our repentance. Understand that real joy is found in God, not in sin. Understand real joy is found in God, not in sin. So in verse 10, David prays, he would create in him a clean heart. Verse 12, the Lord would not take his presence away. And then verse 12 again, they restore the joy of salvation. Three prayers, but I'd say it's really just one prayer said three ways. It's a prayer for renewal so he can have joy. David is saying, so renew my heart that I desire what you desire. So fill me with your spirit that I have real, ultimate joy. That's what he says in verse 8. Joy, gladness. So do you see what David is doing? David is not content with only receiving pardon for his sin. He desires restored purity of his soul so he can enjoy God. He understands God is not just a distant judge. He's a devoted father who's near. The good news is not just that you are forgiven. The good news is you have the sweet fellowship of God. And this is where real joy is. And that's why repentance, I can say rejoicing in repentance. You often hear me say something like, repentance is not a rude intrusion into our life, crippling our joy. Repentance is a lavish invitation, completing our joy. Why? Because it leads us back to God. That's why. To quote another pastor, 
He says, you have taste buds on your soul's tongue. They were made to lick the lollipop of the gospel. That's where we find satisfaction. Real joy is found in Jesus, not in sin. Now, some might be thinking, well, no, John, I'm pretty sure I have pleasure in my sin. I'd say that pleasure, the fun of sin, the pleasure of sin is like 20-20 vision with no depth perception. Meaning you can clearly see what's right in front of you, but you have no idea what's beyond it. And the gospel comes along and it gives us depth perception. And it shows us we've been too easily satisfied. The gospel shows us in your sin, it's like going to a nice restaurant and you stuff yourself on the free cheap bread they bring to hold you over. And the meal shows up and you're too full to eat. That's what sin is. Sin does not truly satisfy our soul. It only shrinks our soul so it appears full. That's all it does. So why settle for the temporary when you can have the eternal? Why settle for the temporary shallow satisfaction of sexual immorality when you can have the greater pleasure of intimacy with Christ who gave himself for you exclusively and permanently? Why settle for a cheap night of being controlled by alcohol that only leaves you empty when you can be filled with the Spirit who gives you joy, love, peace, patience, kindness? Turn from sin and turn to joy. Realizing your repentance is not calling you away from joy, but to it. And here's what we can easily forget. This joy is not one-sided. Meaning, we take joy in God, but guess what? He delights in us. Did you catch that? Verse 6, Behold, you delight in inward truth. And in verse 19, Do good to Zion, because you're forced to, in your good pleasure. And you drop down more, You delight in right sacrifices. Do you see what this means? God does not declare us technically clean, but still see us as personally repugnant. God does not save us and continue to be repulsed by us. No. The same God who delivers us delights in us. The same God who delivers delights. Like a proud father, he takes great delight in his children. So don't believe the lie that God regrets saving you. Don't believe it. He saved you so that he can spend eternity with you. Rest and rejoice in that. And when you do, your joy will be more sweet, real, and enduring. And it will result in earnest worship of who God is and an eager witness for what he's done. That's the fifth way we rejoice in our repentance. Earnestly worship and eagerly witness. Look at verse 14 and 15. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Here we see the fruits of repentance. Joyful worship. David will sing aloud of God's righteousness. His mouth will declare his praise. And our repentance does the same thing for us. 
This is one of the reasons we sing here on Sunday mornings. It's a fruit of our repentance. It's a way of rehearsing the joy of the gospel and remembering the greater pleasures found in Christ. But just showing up to church and offering some empty words is not enough. Look at verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What does God care about? Attending church, reading your Bible, checking off the list of duties, giving 10% of your money? No. God does not want empty actions. He wants earnest worship. God is interested in our inward motivation that produces right actions. God is pleased in right sacrifice. He's not saying behaviors are unimportant. He's just saying it's not primary. You see, that? it's not an either or, but a both and. So true repentance, true repentance results not in empty actions, but earnest worship, enjoying God, serving his people. We're made to worship. It's what we do. And it's been said we worship our way into sin. And therefore, we have to worship our way out. It's what we do. And when we walk in that joyful worship obedience, our eyes will get off of ourselves. And they will gaze at something far more bigger and larger than we are. We will become concerned about what God is concerned about. And that's where David's attention is. If you see that verse 13 again. Notice where his attention is. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Verse 18. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices. David is praying, God, accept my repentance and use it to see others come to faith in you. Use my repentance to build up your, your people in your good pleasure. David's concerned not just with himself and his kingdom. He's concerned with God and God's kingdom. He's not just happy to know that he has joy in God. He desires others to come have that same joy as well. See, our joy is complete when our joy is shared. And that's what repentance does. It invites others to share the joy that we have in God. So in our repentance, we worship God and we witness that joy to others that they too might take part in that. True repentance results in worship that's so attractive and so compelling that others are drawn to repent as well and join us as we sing to God and enjoy Him. Here's the truth. The more repentance the world sees in us, the more repentance we'll see in the world. The more repentance the world sees in us, Restoration Church, the more repentance we'll see in the world. It's attractive when we lead people to the one who has the fullness of joy in himself. And so let's rejoice in our repentance, knowing God will use it, yes, to bring us joy, but also to bring others joy as well. It's amazing when you think about it. So Psalm 51 teaches us there's nothing that can keep us from enjoying the gracious mercy of God that satisfies every longing of our soul. It teaches us that real repentance does not quench our joy but completes it. 
So if you're here this morning and you've never understood this gospel message, that coming to God is the fullness of joy, can I, can I invite you to confess the seriousness of your sin and trust in Christ alone that you might be reconciled back to God? Not just forgiven, yes, forgiven, but more than that, have the sweet fellowship of God and his people. And for us, Restoration Church, let's be a church that rejoices in repentance. Let's rejoice in repentance as we turn to God and cry out to mer- for mercy from him. Let's rejoice in repentance as we confess the seriousness of our sin. Let's rejoice in repentance as we trust God alone for forgiveness. Let's rejoice in repentance as we know that true joy is found in Jesus, not in sin. And let's rejoice in repentance as we earnestly worship God and we eagerly witness to others that the gospel might advance in Washington, D.C. and beyond. Yes, even in our repentance, God will use it to magnify his name and make our joy and the joy of others complete. That's why we rejoice in our repentance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you that you laid your life down for us, that we might have the fullness of joy. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you convict us of our sin and you comfort us in Christ. Continue to do that this morning, we pray. Amen.